Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please turn there to Second Peter again with me. I do have that text for you on your outline. Second Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. This is the second last sermon from this apostolic and very pastoral letter from Peter. The letter bids us ultimately to grow in grace and knowledge. Not just one or the other, but grace and knowledge in concert together. Grace simply put that undeserved standing of favor we have before God because of the blood of Jesus. Sinners that can stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That should never be lost from our minds and from our mouths and from our hearts, but we must grow in plumbing the depths of that grace by learning more about what God reveals of himself in Scripture. And in Scripture, living out that Scripture in community and uh, growing in grace and knowledge together, to always working in concert. And that's really the thrust of Peter's purpose. He begins with our position in Christ. He moves to uh, living out our position in Christ by putting on brotherly kindness and all those different attributes spoken of in many places in Scripture. Then in chapter 2, he really lays out false teachers and exposes them and exhibits a righteous indignation against how they lead people astray. And then we come to this triumphant chapter 3, the coming, the sure coming of Christ. And so I pick up the text where we left off last week, starting at verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. Hear now God's word. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. I want you to think of several real-life scenarios in order to kind of conjure a particular feeling I want you to have for a moment. You know how feelings-driven I am. So I want you to, though, for a moment, really think of the feeling I will describe. I think most of you will relate with one of these scenarios. Okay, you have a big test. You have been studying faithfully. You planned way ahead. You've learned stuff that you needed to know early and have been repeating it over and over. Maybe you even made flashcards and have been going over the flashcards constantly, consistently. The test date is coming. You're looking forward to the date because you're ready. There's a little flutter in your stomach, a little nervousness, but it's not nervousness about the result, just waiting for the day to come because you know on that day you're going to get to show what it is that you have learned. Now, maybe that's not a common experience you've had. And maybe because of its rarity, you know what I'm talking about. There's a certain excitement you have about being able to come to that date because you're ready. Now, another scenario. You've got a big project at work. You've been pulling your part of the load. You've gone above and beyond what was expected on your team. You took work home and honed it there. You worked late into the hours of the night. You asked the right questions of your superiors when they were needed to be asked. You even finished the project ahead of the deadline. Now you're excited for the deadline to come and for the big weeks to come and see what you have to present. And you are excited, a little bit nervous, but you're ready. 
capture that feeling for a moment. Think about that. Here's another example. Maybe those who didn't relate with the first two might relate with this one. You've got a big race to run. Last year you ran it and about died. You said to yourself, I'm not going to let that happen next year. I'm going to train harder, watch what I eat, and work out consistently so I get to that point. I will not have this happen again. And you were faithful. And you're coming up to the date. It's a week away, and you cannot wait for it to be here because you're ready. In fact, you did a time trial on the same course, and you beat one of the record times in your age class. And you cannot wait for that day to come because you're ready. That should be the sense every believer has about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the analogy breaks down in this way. We are not the ones that make ourselves ready, are we? It's Christ doing the work of making his people ready so that when Christ comes, we can be excited about him coming. And we can stand in his presence because of the blood of Christ covering us. This is the level of excitement we ought to have about the day of the Lord, for all its awfulness that is expressed here, for the person, the child of God, who knows they're a sinner, has repented of their sins, have trusted in the work of Christ on the cross. For that person, you should look forward to the coming of Christ because that means the final purification that you so desperately need, that I so desperately need. This is the anticipation we should take to the day of the Lord and its coming. The final coming of the Lord Jesus will display God's glory and authenticate the true meaning of life. I remember way back, by using uh, repetition in Colossians, a wonderful verse. Listen to what it says. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The final coming of the Lord Jesus will display God's glory and will authenticate the true meaning of life. Who is your life? It's Jesus. Is the final coming of Christ a good thing? You better believe it is. For God's glory and for the benefit of his people. Let's ask two important questions. First, what will the final coming of Christ be like? Look with me at the text and we see first in verse 10 that Peter labels the final coming of Christ the day of the Lord. And this has much meaning. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Peter writes. Later in verse 12, he uses another phrase that's very similar, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now some think this is two phases of one event. I rather think they're synonymous, the day of the Lord and the day of God, the day of his coming, the day of his kingdom. These are all common themes for his coming ultimately, but also as we look at where Peter gets this, we see that it has a wider meaning as well. Peter here is speaking in New Testament terms, about the New Testament doctrine, you might say, of the second coming, as we hear it so popularly labeled. But he is describing it in terms of the Old Testament doctrine of the day of the Lord. So we have to, to do justice, consider for a moment what this phrase means if we're to answer the question, what will the final coming of Christ be like? Now, the day of the Lord, as you do a study of this in the Old Testament, it's a biblical phrase that speaks of a period of special divine judgment in history. Now, it always appears in the singular, day of the Lord, but it can mean an epic. In other words, when the Edomites were actually judged, as Isaiah prophesied, uh, it was an epic of judgment called the day of the Lord. Uh, this happens throughout the Old Testament prophets. What day is particularly in mind 
depends on the context in which you read it. Many times you could just open up and I can give you the different references and I'll kind of overview them in a moment and you could see immediately who Isaiah is talking about, who Haggai must be referring to and historically we can note what happened to those nations, whether it be Edom or uh, the Babylonian, Babylonians or it could even be Jerusalem, the, uh, the defiant uh, people of God. Uh, these are different recipients of the day of the Lord judgment in the Old Testament. But there are a few cases, and I believe 2 Peter 3 is one, where it's clear that it's not just an immediate judgment it's referring to, it's the ultimate judgment, the final coming of Christ. Uh, For a brief overview, there are 26 references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Nine different prophets refer to it. In most of those cases, in fact, 22, I would surmise, are referring to immediate judgment that happens. It always is a prototype of ultimate judgment, But many times it speaks directly to that time in which the prophet is speaking of the day of the Lord. One or two times for sure it's really talking about what 2 Peter's talking about, the end of time. That is the end of time as we know it, the final consummation. Uh, Just to overview, Isaiah prophesies about Babylon and Edom and their destruction and their judgment. Jeremiah with regard to Egypt, among others. Lamentations also written by Jeremiah to Jerusalem. Uh, Ezekiel, talking about Israel's prophets in particular being recipients of the day of the Lord judgment. Egypt, Babylon, Joel, Israel at least he speaks of. Amos, the northern kingdom is his focus of the day of the Lord judgment. Obadiah, Edom again. Zephaniah, Jerusalem and Judah in particular. Zechariah most likely looks forward to the time of Christ fulfilled when the Romans crushed Jerusalem. We could see this forecasted in Zechariah and in Malachi as well. So day of the Lord has a particular application, we just have to search to see what it is. But there are some cases, and I love these cases where it's clearer than others. I think 2 Peter 3 qualifies for such a case. Some think it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. I think many passages do. But in this particular case, the catastrophic nature of it, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, I would submit this is a reference to Christ's final coming. Let's continue. The final coming of Christ will be unexpected. If we ask the question, what will it be like? It will be unexpected. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this is true of any day of the Lord event. The coming of the Lord's judgment is always described as unexpected, no matter where it's referred to. Jesus speaking in Matthew 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's warning, but there's still the surprise when it happens. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 refers to this as well. For you yourselves are fully aware, that is, they've been warned, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Revelation 3. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Revelation 16. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go out exposed. Now, these pictures give warning, but at the same time there's this Lack of expectation that happens. The best way I can describe it biblically, and then I'll do it in a more worldly way in a second. But first of all, Noah. I mean, for, for decades upon decades, Noah is warning and building this huge boat. And when the time actually comes, you know there are many people that can't believe it just happened, despite all the warning. Uh, that's how judgment happens so often. Think about it. 
a test you haven't studied for that you thought was so far ahead. Isn't it amazing how fast that date comes? I know several years back when I first went to Worlds of Fun, I stood in line for the detonator. At that time, that was a relatively new kind of ride. It's the kind where you sit in the seats and it fires you up at you know, amazing speed. Now they're all over the place and people have seen them. But even so, the first time I stood in line for a long time watching people get on, I saw what was going to happen. It was clear to me. I mean, it's not hard. But when I got up there, sat in the seat, and it actually fired me up, it still shocked me. Right? You know what I'm talking about? I've been at it a hundred times since then, and it still shocks me. Okay, the day of the Lord, there's a sense in which there's expectation because we have the warning, but there's also going to be a surprise factor, I think just because of its awesomeness. I mean, the level of shock and awe cannot be described by a human orator. In this light, the final coming of Christ will also be catastrophic. We have to see what it says. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And roar here is a word for wind. That's much like, like that, that sense of wind coming through a tunnel you hear. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Uh, we know the universe will be transformed. The wind noise, uh, could this reflect the, the oxygen being sucked up into fire? Could it be stars exploding, supernovas? Great purifying fire will accompany Christ's coming. Verse 12 says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We have a vivid description here and in other passages of a transformed universe. New heavens will result. A new earth will result. It's catastrophic, cataclysmic, apocalyptic for sure. It's big. It's huge. Divine patience mentioned in the passage we read before that he all would come to repentance, that none would perish, is now balanced by God's justice as it comes. Physical convulsions describe the creation. Fire purges and cleanses. I don't believe it annihilates, but it purges and cleanses. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The final coming of Christ will be catastrophic. And even to the degree that this is somehow figurative, it's only figurative something that we can't wrap our minds around that would be even bigger. The final coming of Christ also will be a time of judgment. Verse 10, the second part says, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And here's the key. As this purifying is happening physically, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there's a time of exposure which is met with God's judgment. Now you have to fill in some of those details with other passages. But we see here, at least in a very general way, that exposure to God, nowhere to hide, means judgment. And in this very sense, at least we can say that the glory of God in this exposure will be displayed. All the things that are done in secret or supposed secrecy now are exposed. And there's no way for someone to openly blaspheme God because he exposes it and meets it with judgment. So God's glory is displayed. The supernatural spectacle would be enough to declare God's glory, but now the exposure of works done on the earth will there point to it as well. You could think of the psalm that says, The heavens declare the glory of God, if that's true. What do the exploding heavens declare about the glory of God? This is how big it is in this time of judgment. His glory will be further on display with judgment. Judgment of his enemies, judgment of his own. And you know, the passage doesn't dwell much with the unrighteous. It's focused in Peter to the people of God. They're assembled in the church. 
So it doesn't refer in specific terms the same way Jesus does in other portions to the unrighteous. But we know uh, what is spoken of is the heavenly bodies are burned and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Uh, when we look ahead or look back, excuse me, to what Jesus talked about with regard to his coming and the separation, those were his, who are his and who's, those who are not. But remember, when this exposure happens, nothing will escape. Nothing will be hidden from his sight. All things are laid bare and open to the eyes of him whom we must all give account. I know when I was a kid especially, I really believed there was a way that you can talk your way out of anything. Can you imagine that? I mean, I just was sure that if I was given the chance, I'd be able to talk my way out of it. And I remember distinctly before I came to Christ, or maybe even when I came to Christ and was wrestling with my own pride problem and the humility that salvation really started to bring, as I understood I could not earn it, I remember specifically thinking for some time, if I just have a shot to meet God before I go into my eternal state, I'd have a way to discuss with him and somehow argue. And I know some of you have thought that yourselves. I just want to be very clear. No one will be able to open their mouth in the presence of God. You'll have no opportunity. And unless you have the blood of Christ covering you, you will not stand in this judgment. This is how big and important it is. And it's practical today. Don't think of it as the sun coming off. None of us are going to live that, far, that long. We're all going to face him at some point. Some, when he comes again physically, most probably we're going to die and meet him. Only Christ can cover you in that judgment. And only Christ can give you excitement about it rather than dread. We have for us the picture as Jesus speaks in Matthew 25. I'll just read a portion. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he enumerates the things that show that they are true sheep. The sheep he speaks of in John 10 that he died for. But then later he says in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's all those people who think they're good, and they say that I can get into heaven based on my own good works. He's going to say, Depart from me. Only his blood can give us righteousness, the righteousness required to obtain eternal life. All of us are sinners. Only those covered by the meritorious blood of Christ will stand in the day of the Lord, and the final coming of Christ will indeed be a time of judgment. Also, the final coming of Christ will usher in a new eternal order. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. At the final coming, the current temporal order will end and the so-called new creation will be established as the perfect and glorious manifestation of final redemption. It's not just us that God's working to redeem. It's all of creation groaning for redemption. And all of this will be consummated at that time when Christ comes back. New heavens and the new earth. What does this mean? Well, Burkhoff notes this. Christ will return at the end of the world for the purpose of introducing the future age, the eternal state of things. And he will do this by inaugurating and completing two mighty events, namely the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. When we talk of new heavens and new earth, it's my understanding as I've studied this, that the earth will not be completely annihilated, but rather utterly transformed and purified and renewed. And I base this on part of what we read in our call to worship about him establishing the earth, but also there are other reasons. Uh, there are two different words for new 
regarding new heavens and new earth. One means new in time or origin, neos. The other means new in nature or quality, kainos. Peter uses kainos in this case. And so I contest that the fiery return of Christ will have the purpose of renewal and utter purification. I'm not suggesting things will be that recognizable, but it's not a total annihilation. There are a few places in the Psalms where this kind of uh, purpose for the earth is alluded to in Psalm 78. And he built a sanctuary like high places in the earth which he hath established forever. Then also in Psalm 148, Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. He hath also established them forever and ever, and hath made a decree which will not pass. Psalm 93, He has also established the world, and it cannot be moved. Whatever the case and the mystery that it is, it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And Lewis captures this best, C.S. Lewis, as he says this, Bottom line here, all that is not eternal is eternally useless. All eternally useless things will be lost. Now let's pause for a minute. All eternally useless things will be lost. Let's just everybody think for a moment about everything we're doing and how does it contribute to eternity. I know there's many things we've got to do to exist, but I would suggest to you that even those things are sacred in that they promote sacred things, which, which have to do with people, have to do with building those people up, building relationship between people, and all the pursuits that can be thought of that have eternal significance. Think of what they are and seriously consider whether there's some things that just got to go. Because I think C.S. Lewis is right. All that is not eternal is eternally useless. All eternally useless things will be lost. No more useless stuff. Think more of this new creation. It's revealed in Acts chapter 1. And I can only say so much about it. My mind can only wrap around what I see in Scripture a bit. It's beyond me in many ways. But in Acts 1, uh, there's a wonderful passage that says, Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This renewal sense. And then Hebrews 12. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. In Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in that Put it in connection with what we've just read in 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. This will be the heavenly home for us who are in Christ. A physical place. It's, you're actually going to have a body. It'll be like Christ's raised body. An inheritance of the new creation to tend and keep. Probably like the Garden of Eden before the fall, but better. The final reward is eternal life in communion with God itself, life in all its fullness, without any of the imperfections and disturbances that we have in the present. The fullness of eternal life is enjoyed with communion that we have with God. This is why Revelation 21 looks ahead saying, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Does that sound familiar? It's the prophetic promise to Abraham that is ultimately realized when Jesus comes. And we really are his people in that sense, all who dwell on earth, where righteousness dwells, where he dwells bodily, and we, the righteous, because of him, also dwell. 
there is no doubt, brothers and sisters, a sense of otherness that kind of frustrates me at times when I think of heaven. Will, this passage, or will, will the passage of time be experienced? Have you ever thought of that? Will we really experience time passing? I mean, a common question kids have, but I think adults will say too is, aren't we going to be bored? Well, how long would it take to study an inexhaustible God? You can't come to the end of him. Remember, the Bible is just but a small portion of what there is to be known about God. It's what we need to know. But all eternity will be spent in growing in knowledge of God, the Creator. I just know it won't be boring. I don't know exactly what it'll be like, but I know it won't be boring. And it'll be perfect communion with our Creator. Our human inability to conceive of heaven shouldn't detract from our looking forward to it. I hope it doesn't for you. What will the final coming of Christ be like? Unexpected, catastrophic time of judgment, usher in a new world order. How should we then view the Lord's final coming? John Calvin said wonderfully, we are seized with impatience for the day of Christ already expected. At the same time, we securely regard it as afar off. First of all, how should we view the Lord's final coming? For those who trust Christ and for those who do not trust Christ, two different ways of looking at it, for sure. For those who trust Christ, the certainty of the final coming should motivate us to spiritual maturity. Let me say this very clearly. It doesn't matter if the final coming of Christ doesn't come in your lifetime or my lifetime. It is a certainty that reminds us that all of us will certainly face Christ soon, very soon. That certainty accents the reality of our mortality. Death will mean the same thing to each of us. The certainty of death and meeting God is accented by his final coming. In this sense, the truth of his final coming is immediately relevant to your worldview today because you're going to meet God. And I've heard many people say, many a preacher preach, that on the day of a funeral when they're doing it, it may be 60, 70, 80 years a person lived, but it seems all too quickly when you're there at the funeral. We'll all meet Christ swiftly. This should compel in us a sense of reevaluating our whole lives just to make sure what we're doing does have eternal significance. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Dwell on what's important, he says. Dwell on what's going to last. Dwell on what is eternal. That's what you should dwell on now. And every little decision we make somehow contributes to this end. Please don't see this passage being preached in the way I heard it preached so many times. You better get right. Jesus might come back today and you're not ready. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, relax. You're ready. You are ready. Now, in light of that readiness and that reality, let's live lives differently. There's a whole different way of looking at the coming of Christ. I'm excited. I hope he comes. The only thing that stops me humanly and honestly is the fact that I know so many people who do not know him. That's what stops me sometimes from praying for him to really come quickly. But even in that, I know in myself that all will come that are appointed to come when he comes. And it's totally up to him, and it will glorify him perfectly. And I will not spend eternity thinking about that, but rather in complete shock that I'm here. This compels us to live holiness, holy lives and godly lives. Not out of fear of his coming, but in reaction to the sureness we have of acceptance in him when he does come. He is able to keep us to that day, as the book of Jude says. And that's really what this book's about, growing in grace and knowledge. How do you prepare for the Lord's coming? Grow in grace and knowledge. Lives of holiness and godliness are supported as you grow in grace and knowledge. 
We have to build our lives on things that will last. Living our life with conscious thought about continual awareness, about future realities. Even in all of our brokenness, this thought should change us. It should change us as a church. You know, we have a mission statement we put on our bulletin and all sorts of things that we publish to mature as a community of Christians. Is that something eternal? We've got to ask ourselves that. Is maturity as a community of Christians eternal? I suggest it is. I suggest that we'll live in community forever. Even now, it's so important. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven in that sense. Worshiping God. Should not our worship at some level, even in all our brokenness, in the people you got leading you, how messed up they are, even in that, isn't that eternal, worshiping God? Should it not somehow seek to reflect what happens in heaven? Studying his word, we will not need his word like we need it now, but we'll never stop studying him forever and ever. Proclaiming his gospel to the world, Obviously, in heaven, all those who are there will be in Christ. But recognize that proclaiming the gospel to the world is not just simply the personal message of salvation for someone to hear. It's proclaiming who God is. That's the whole counsel. That's the good news. And the greatest of that news is you can have relationship with him in Christ. There will be a proclamation, if you will, of his glory forever. These are eternal things. And as people come to Christ personally, as families, this has eternal significance. It's got to be eternal. Why we, go, why we do the things that we do. Apply this, please, to your family life, to your individual life, your work life, all the things you can possibly think of that are eternal and have significance. We should view the final coming of Christ with great excitement and longing. Look what it says in verse 12, and you have to look closely where it says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This can be clumsy in English because it sounds almost like you are somehow speeding up the coming by the way you act. And we just know based on multiple references to the appointed day and hour uh, in the fixed mind of God that this is not what it is referring to, but rather it's a combination waiting for and hastening of earnestly longing for the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire, and so forth. There is an earnest longing for it. And one author says this, Christ has an inheritance of glory to collect. Only when his bride has reached a point of unknown, unknown to us of sanctification, when he's finished doing his work, will the bridegroom return. Then he will come to complete her purification. And he might present her holy and blameless in love. So there is much we can do to hasten the day of the Lord, meaning look for it and earnestly strive after, which is a day of pure godliness. Until he comes, we can all be about supplying godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. He means we can be about living out who we are in Christ. The firestorm will come, but the true church of Christ, those who have their lives hidden with Christ in God, will stand through that judgment. While the unrighteous perish in eternal judgment, God rejoices over his righteous ones, covered with the blood of his Son, whom he loves. We long for Jesus to come quickly in view of what Paul says. To live is Christ. To die is gain. There's a struggle in his mind about it. But I'm to live here and live a life of fruitfulness. So are you. To live a life of fruitfulness that lasts to eternity. What about for those who do not trust Christ? I want to say very bluntly, there are definitely, in a group this size, there are probably some who don't believe anything I'm saying. So that person, I can't make them believe it. My prayer is that God would quicken you to see the truth and the certainty of this before it's too late, before you go to meet him or he comes. But I'm not really speaking to that group. I'm speaking to the one that came in not believing, but has heard it and has a sense of terror about them. 
If you have a sense of terror based on what you've heard and read and what you've heard before about this, praise God. You would not be terrified if God was not quickening you. You would not care. There will be no one, no one who loves God that's in hell upset that God passed over him. So someone sitting here terrified by what they're hearing, it may not all hit you, right? And you may say, I don't know about this. What else is the Bible? Hey, come talk to me at that point. Talk to one of us. Because that sense of terror is not something that comes humanly. It's something God gives to turn us to him. We ought to be scared of the just desert for our sins. But we ought to be comforted greatly when we turn to our Savior, whose arms are wide open. And quite frankly, God corrals you into his arms. What will happen? What will happen at the end? For all the charts and things I could point out, what I think it says very plainly is this. At God's appointed time, when all the elect have been saved and God has done his work in them, Christ will descend visibly, bodily, personally. The day of the Lord for the final time. Christ will call his people to himself in the air. The dead first and then the living. Burkhoff says it this way, Christ will not return in the body of his humiliation, but in glory. The clouds of heaven will be his chariot, the angels his bodyguard, the archangels his heralds, and the saints of God his glorious attendants. He will come as King of kings and Lord of lords, triumphant over all the forces of evil. Simultaneously, the cataclysm spoken of here will come. The sheep and the goats will be separated, the last judgment. The devil and his angels will be cast into final hell. The unrighteous, those who have rejected Christ, will be fitted with bodies that will go into everlasting destruction. The righteous, the sheep, those who are covered with the blood of the Lamb, will be fitted with new resurrection bodies to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth, our eternal dwelling place where we never get bored. Paradise will thus have been restored because of the work of Christ, the second Adam who did not fail where the first did. All for the eternal glory of God. And why I'm so excited is that this is about the glory of God and we are tokens that he can use to show his glory as he redeems us. The final coming of the Lord Jesus will display God's glory and it will authenticate the true meaning of life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the certainty of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, that you give us a new excitement about it and that we would then just really just have our lives changed, radically changed based on this reality, the certainty of meeting Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would make us different as a result. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that anyone who has a burden of guilt, that they would see it lifted as they turn to Christ and have that burden placed upon him. They would recognize that Christ's coming is good for them marks the end of their road sanctification and into glory. Lord, I pray for the one who's terrorized by these words, that you would draw them close to yourself through what Christ has done, that they would see vividly their sin and then see vividly the grace of Christ, what he's done for them, their trust in him wholly for their eternity. Lord, in all these things, though, may you receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.